Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 40, originally recorded live on February 26, 2012. This is part one of a two-part episode dealing with the frequently asked questions about humanistic Judaism. Rabbi Shalom and the adult education attendees explore the questions and answers that define humanistic Judaism in the context of the world around us. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Um, I titled this presentation, What the Heck is Humanistic Judaism? I could also have titled it, What Have I Gotten Myself Into? <laughs> um, and uh, the irony is that many people find that the community is comfortable by the ethos, by the kind of people that they meet, by the way we approach our services and celebrations, but don't always think through where did this philosophy come from that helps to develop what we are, uh, because we aren't actually simply an organically developed cultural institution. We did think about things, and our intellectual choices made a difference in how we expressed our cultural identity. Um, you could ask a parallel set of questions that we're going to explore today of any other kind of Judaism or Christianity or other religion. You know, what makes conservative Judaism? Is it what the lay people do on their own? Is it what the rabbis tell them to do that they may or may not follow? Is it what the prayer book says they should be doing, which, again, they may or may not be doing? Uh, is it what the official movement pronouncements are? Well, it's a combination of all of those things. And uh, I'll present my perspective on what humanistic Judaism is, but each family is going to express it and articulate it a little bit differently. The most important thing I hope you get out of this presentation is that there are a lot of resources out there. Now, the best message of what we are and why we're important is always your story, why you find it interesting, why you connect with it, what was interesting about the community that you found, what keeps you involved, um, what are the most meaningful experiences. That's the best message you can do. In uh, Christian churches, it's called testifying. <laughs> you stand up and you say why you believe what you believe. Well, we can do that too. And so that's always the best answer, not my you know seven-word answer or my catechism of basic beliefs. Um, say what you believe, and that will be what we believe. Um, but at the same time, there are certainly commonly asked questions or issues that come up from time to time or challenges that we have to face that uh, we can come up together with some good answers to uh, that uh, don't have to sound rehearsed, but will answer the question as being asked. Um, but the most important thing I want you to know is that you have resources available. You are not on your own on this. Uh, we have been around for over 40 years, and we've developed materials to help deal with these kind of uh, challenges and just personal inquiry and exploration of what the basic message of humanistic Judaism is and what some of the implications are as well. So I referenced on the board uh, two organizations. One is the Society for Humanistic Judaism, which is the national network of congregations like our own. Um, and so if you are interested in finding out what is there for humanistic Judaism in the Detroit area or in New York City or in southern Florida, that's where you would go to find out those other communities. And they also have a lot of resources on the site in terms of publications, uh, descriptions of holidays, basic philosophy, statements on particular issues. In fact, we just issued a statement on reproductive freedom um, that uh, went out by email and uh, it's on their website as well. Uh, so that's a uh, central point for resources. The other website I put up there is the International Institute for Secular Humanistic Judaism, which is a lot of syllables. Um, answering the phone is a challenge. Uh, but this is our leadership training organization. Um, they train rabbis and leaders. They also run major conferences like our colloquium, which is coming up um, in uh, just a few weeks, it feels. 
couple of months uh, at the end of April in uh, Evanston. Um, and they also, on their website, have a, a large number of resources, including links to other online sources, blogs and audio podcasts, frequently asked questions and uh, videos and other kinds of resources to explore further uh, who we are and what we do, as well as their own publications. And since I wear two hats, I'm both the rabbi of Kovadash and also the dean for North America of the Institute, um, I'm here to sell books. So, I, <laughs> no, I mean, I brought some examples of the material that the... Uh, the Institute makes available, and also their catalog has more, and there's more on the website and, and so on. Uh, but again, you know, if you're interested in a particular area or subject, there are ways to explore that more deeply. We have a book on humanist readings in Jewish folklore that look at Jewish literature, and, um, the folk literature, not necessarily the official pious legal literature. Uh, as a source for us getting a sense of continuity with the past. We have an anthology of 50 thinkers and writers whose work either led to the groundwork for humanist Judaism or, in fact, were involved in our movement in its formative phases. Uh, there's a book of basic philosophy called Basic Ideas, and so on and so on. So you're not on your own, and you're not on your own nationally in terms of connecting to communities and also intellectually in terms of resources that you have. So I thought the best way to go through this subject, uh, rather than have me didactically lecture at you the whole time, is to take a look at some of these frequently asked questions uh, that we have to deal with. Some of them are not unique to humanistic Judaism in that if it's a humanistic philosophy of life, it applies to non-Jews who have that philosophy of life. There's an organization called the American Humanist Association, which on a philosophical level of how do we understand the world takes almost exactly the same perspective that we would on many of these questions. So again, we're not alone in that sense, philosophically. Uh, of course, we have our own particular inflection, cultural resonance, and the way we approach these issues. Um, and you'll find other uh, resources that are parallel, but not exactly the same from these other uh, secular and humanist groups that are out there. So I divided it into two halves, answering philosophic questions and answering Jewish questions. Um, but before we get into the specific questions, which I promise we will in a minute, I just want to talk about the title of what we are, humanistic Judaism, and what do we mean by those two terms. Um, humanistic, for us, means human-focused. We celebrate human power, human knowledge, the human experience, human needs, human happiness. Our attention level is on this level. It's not non-supernatural Judaism, because it's defining yourself by what you think isn't there. It's not non-God Judaism, atheistic, no belief in Judaism, because again, our focus is not looking up and saying nothing. Our focus is looking at each other and saying us. Uh, it's a human-focused uh, approach. Now, some uh, will characterize that as worshiping people. Instead of worshiping God, you worship people. But we don't think people are perfect. I mean, I know plenty of people, and in my experience, they are not perfect. Uh, I know myself, and I know I'm not perfect. Um, so the uh, approach is not to worship people as if they were gods, but to focus on people as the best and most reliable force that we have to improve the world. You know, uh, the animals are not going to bring justice to human experience. The plants and trees are not going to bring justice to human experience. And frankly, the plants and trees have enough trouble cleaning up after the mess that we've made among them. And if those messes are going to be cleaned up, if there is going to be justice, we have to enact it ourselves. A friend of mine, actually, she's a Unitarian minister. She posted on Facebook recently, I have done nothing to deserve the problems I'm having with this knitting project. <laughs> I commented to her, and I said, there is a lack of justice in the universe. <laughs> I mean, even on the mundane level of knitting, but on the cosmic level, obviously, there are problems too. If there is going to be an improvement, we have to do it. So that's humanistic. It's focused on human power, human responsibility, the human experience. 
And so for us, being Jewish is not uniquely oriented above and beyond. It is not primarily a supernatural religious orientation or even necessarily always a religious connection. For us, being Jewish is like being Irish or Italian. Judaism is like Hellenism. It's the culture and civilization of our people. And so that can include religious elements or things that are often understood as religious, like life cycle ceremonies, holidays, and so on, even as they've evolved over the centuries. But it also includes um, food, language, history, and all those other elements that make up a culture. Okay, with that basic understanding, now let's take a look at some of the implications of that in these philosophic questions. And I've broken them up into a number of different areas, um, reality, purpose, and meaning, and so on. Uh, and frankly, you know, we'll take a look at them and we'll look at the ones that you want to look at. We don't have to go through every single one uh, as we go through the morning. So the question is about reality. Uh, how do we understand reality, what the world is? Um, is it what tradition said it was or is it something else? You know, tradition had a God that answered prayers, that rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked, gave you commandments you had to follow. Um, our approach may be a little bit different. We want to focus on the human level and what we can know and do rather than what God wants us to do. Um, so here are some reality questions. Why do people call you non-believers? If there is no God, then who made this infinitely complex universe? If so many Jews or so many people believe in God, who are you to disagree? And belief in God is a support system. It's important to many people. Is it right to take it away? So which one of those strikes your fancy? I think the last one is probably... An important. Yeah, interesting. Well, there's a little bit of conflict with with uh, with some people. I, I especially like you know I got a brother that's at one time he was really a heavy Christian and you know it did it did cause some conflict in our family which I really had a hard time and you know my mom's a big believer in God too she mm -hmm. say a prayer you know so. Um, I, it's not like I want to take it away from you, but I do feel like sometimes it is a good support for, for some people. It does help. Mm -hmm. So I can understand. Well, we have, a, we have an inherent intention because we want to respond to reality as we understand it, based on science and knowledge and facts. That are, and facts are facts. They're not up for debate necessarily. They're always up for debate. Um, and at the same time, we want people to be able to make up their own minds. And it could be that people look at the same evidence that we look at and come to different conclusions. I mean, that happens in politics all the time. It can certainly happen in, it in science all the time. In science all the time, <laughs> right. Um, and certainly it could happen in theology, too. So uh, it's not that we are necessarily militantly running around demanding that people give up their faith. But what we are doing is creating a support system for us based on what we believe. So I was always struck that the, the virulent uh, reactions to these billboards that have been going up that say, millions are good without God, and then contact this organization. And religious people get very, very upset at that. And it's not like they're saying, you can't be good with God. <laughs> they're simply saying there are people who are good people without relying on a God to do it. But sometimes the very existence of that person is a challenge to the religious person. And you can ask, is it because they're asking questions as well, or is it because they're not as secure in what they believe? See, it doesn't bother me as a humanist to know that there are religious people out there. It doesn't challenge my humanism, because I'm, I'm very comfortable with what I believe. But I think it, it comes back to an idea of, I understand the world this way, 
and you're challenging that world perception. Mm -hmm. And my perception is not only is there a God, but God loves me, God is my support system, and you're saying that doesn't exist or you can deny that existence and and that threatens my, you know, it, it's a, you know. It's that fallback. Right. Of things happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that, that does create other problems, you know, when you have a terrible thing happen to you and you're trying to find the reason for it. Um, we, we don't spend a lot of time pondering why bad things happen because bad things happen. That's how, that's how it goes. Um, even when it comes to, to death and loss, you know, you get a lot of people, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but you get a lot of people who, uh, you know, having a belief in something after I'll meet them again is very comforting, but it sort of masks the reality that you've lost this person for the rest of your life. You're never going to talk to them again. You're never going to hear them talk to you or be able to embrace them. And sometimes you need to face the reality of the loss. And so denying it by saying, well, I'll meet them again, it's no big deal, they're in a better place, this is wonderful, it denies the reality of what you're feeling, which is a tremendous loss. So our approach can actually be more uh, support-producing because it's founded on reality instead of built on, uh, on jello. But I think that also comes into the idea of what is reality, and there's a certain reality distortion field that happens when you are brought up in a system that's, that starts with the premise. Mm -hmm. There is a personal God, that God loves you and cares for you as a, a, you know, some kind of eternal figure and is involved and, you know, like you're a teenager and yes, you need guidance and, and whatnot, but for the most part, trying to be hands off, you know, type of this, you know, philosophy, how do we reconcile Yes, there is a God, and but at the same time, not sitting there like a puppet master type of thing. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it, you know, it starts with that reality distortion. Mm -hmm. So when you start with the premise, there is a God, instead of challenging the idea of is there a God, or what what necessitates there being a God, what evidence is there, mm -hmm. and so you, you know, coming in from the idea of you know, that's where we start from. I think that's, then everything has to fit to it, like a heliocentric view of the universe. Right. You make, you make the numbers fit. Well, I was talking with a student before who was doing her bar mitzvah speech on uh, Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 with the creation of Adam and Eve and, and so on. And, um, you know, one of the details is that this didn't really happen because of dating and geology and dinosaurs. And I said, well, you could always say the dinosaurs were killed by Noah's flood. And, uh, you know, your dating is just wrong because it has to be this time frame. That's it. Uh, I know that's true. Therefore, everything else has to fit into that framework. Um, well, again, I, I try to keep things on a very simple level. You know, it's, it's the um, intentionally simplistic argumentative style. Rather than get into complex details about you can't prove a negative and, uh, you know, where is your evidence? I mean, that can work for some people. But I find sometimes it's very simple to say... Can I make up my own mind? <laughs> you know, when I look at the world, it doesn't make sense to me. And here, look, here's what I see that doesn't make sense to me out of this. And you're welcome to take that information and come up with your own conclusion. Um, but when I look at it, it doesn't work for me. And so given that reality, what do I do now? You know, this is also the, the generational shift in a humanistic approach to life where the first generation may be breaking away from a religious upbringing and they have this anger and they have to break away and they're very anti-religious. 
And the next generation doesn't need to do that because the parents have done it. Um, or they get to a place where they need to focus on what's next. So, you know, uh, some of these atheist organizations that are out there will sit around spending all their time focused on how they can prove once and for all there isn't a God. And, you know, I'm, I'm over that. <laughs> okay, fine. I don't need that issue anymore. What do I do now? How do I find happiness? Where do I find beauty? That's, for me, the more interesting question. So I sometimes will describe us as post-atheist. It's like, what's, what's next? That's why we chose the title of humanist, because it's a positive definition of what we can do. Um, and there may even be members of our congregation, and I know there are, who believe in something. But they like our positive human emphasis on responsibility and action. And I hope I'm not getting a little off topic, but mm -hmm. in talking to Jenny and her family about what this is and why I wanted to do it, um, well, Jenny and then her family afterwards to yes, explain yes. what we were doing and what, um, what was the most interesting thing I read that was so easy to pass along as our argument was this word agnostic that mm -hmm. I've read in a lot of the literature, which is there may or may not be a God, I don't know, but it's not going to change my focus in the world and what right. I think is important as a philosophy and a, a way to live that I want to pass on to my children. That right. decision is theirs to make. I want to teach them about the morality that I think is best. Right. And it may be that, you know, building on a humanist foundation, you wind up with a religious perspective. And there are plenty of people who have been raised in humanistic congregations who have chosen other directions for their life. Mm -hmm. uh, that's fine. Uh, but even so, we, you know, when, when kids come to us and ask us questions, whether me as a rabbi or Sunday school teachers or wherever else, um, we want to have a clear answer that's a humanistic focus. Um, and so we're not taking away the belief in a God necessarily, but we don't want them to wait for the God to heal their illness. We don't want them to rely on the God to save them. You know, it's like the, um, the, the joke where this man is caught in a flood and he says, I believe, I believe that I'll be saved. And a boat comes by and he says, no, no, don't worry. I'm going to be saved. I'm going to be saved. And then a helicopter comes by. Don't worry. I'm going to be saved. And finally he drowns because the water raises and he goes up to heaven. He says, God, why didn't you save me? And God said, well, I sent a boat and a helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Um, so our approach is take the boat and the helicopter. Uh, and so that's a, that's a tangible life skill that we want to convey. Um, and that's based on our understanding of a reality. So it, there may or may not be a God out there, but it's not a God who reliably intervenes in the world, who writes books that tell you exactly what to do, who knows if you've been sleeping, who knows if you're awake, who knows if you've been bad or good. Well, that's not our perspective. Can you think of any other thing that has a stronger way of controlling people? I mean, this is oh, one religion. of the biggest things that I've gotten out of taking your class mm -hmm. for the last year and a half. And to me, it's, it's so obvious that this is nothing but a rouge in <laughs> to, to, to control people's habits. I mean, look at all the problems. I don't think men has killed other men more so than over religion and different gods. Well, that's problem. tough. That's yeah. tough. You include uh, Mao and Stalin, and right. uh, the, the, your, your math is evened out, unfortunately. But um, look, the, the, the point is that um, we want to do the best with what we can know about the world, and the way we find out about the world is through human knowledge, and science is another version of human knowledge. It's like testable, reinforced human knowledge, um, and that helps us understand how how the world works and uh, what our place is in it. So let's look at the next set on purpose and meaning. If what is the meaning of life? Can life have profound meaning without God? Do you believe there is life after death? People are so limited. How can they make a difference? So any one of those jump out at you is interesting. 
I think since I was probably either in middle school or high school, um, the concept of immortality through works has always been, you know, the idea of life after death. It's like what you do here and how that and your legacy, that, that's your immortality, for better or ill. Right. <laughs> you know, there's a less satisfying answer to that question. That is a humanistically consistent answer. It was given by Madeleine Murray O'Hare, the famous atheist of the 1960s, who um, was asked once on a talk show, well, if you don't believe in life after death, what happens when you die? Her answer was, you rot. <laughs> I mean, factually, <laughs> that's true. The body decomposes. Um, and what that gets at, though, is, you see, when people ask about life after death, there's a couple issues going on. One is, what will happen to my family after I'm gone? Hello. But the, the, the second issue is, what happens to me, my individuality, my consciousness? I can't imagine a world without me in it, because this is, it's all been the world that I know. So what would happen if I'm not here? Will things go on? It's sort of like the revelation you have at one point in your life where you, you're sitting in your car with your family and all of a sudden you realize there's all those other cars with all those other families out there and there's all those things going on, all those conversations and issues that I'll have no idea ever in my life. There's a reality beyond me out there. Well, that's the challenge with the life after death question. We want it to be for us. And so... It is useful to talk about immortality through good deeds that you do. There's a genetic immortality in your family or imprinting on people's minds as you've influenced their lives positively. The stories they tell about you help you to live for them in some ways after you're gone. But it's true that your individual consciousness does end. And then the question is, well, what do I do with that information? <laughs> do I hasten that end? Do I prolong that end as long as possible? Do I make the best of the time that I have, given that it's a limited time? Uh, you know, there's a lot of positive lessons to take out of a limited existence. Uh, and again, you don't have to take the absolute as there is absolutely nothing out there. You could base it on reality and say, well, the, as far as we know, our personality is made up of our electrical signals in our brain. And when the heart stops beating and there's no active oxygen to the brain, those signals die out. And so our personality ends. Um, but you can also take the agnostic perspective of we don't know what's going to be, if there is something that we can't find that's there, but this is the only world that we know is here. Again, it's that human focus. What can we do? What can we know? We can't know what's beyond the human experience because by definition, it's beyond the human experience. We can't know it. But if we focus on what we can know and what we can do, what we can understand about death is that it's the end of the life as we know. And so then we have to do our best to make the best of what we have. I have to say, I do like the, the Chinese philosophy with their, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, where they're actually trying to give gifts to deceased ancestors and burning money and, and somehow getting cars to the other side. You know, yeah. it's like this whole, you know, that they, they, they firmly believe, and not only that, but you gotta, you know, give your ancestors. They still, they still want them. your attention. Yeah. <laughs> Even after. Right. Right. I like that way you said about that you pass in the way that your impact of what you've done for people. Mm -hmm. Because like I know since my father passed away, I can see that my brothers and I become more like my father the older we get, so a certain way. Hopefully in a good way. <laughs> right, in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, next, uh, any other in that section? Okay. Um, spirituality and aesthetics. Is there such a thing as spirituality in your philosophy? 
where do you find spiritual or emotional experiences? And science can't explain everything. Why be so limited? It's funny to me that you have spiritual and emotional linked. Mm -hmm. Those are so different to me. Okay. What would you think of as spiritual? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, that's part of why I'm here. Tell me. But emotional is, like, to my mind, human, human connection mm -hmm. of the most intimate kind, right? And, and varying degrees of that depending on, on your relationship with somebody else. Mm -hmm. But spiritual is separate from that. Well, what's mind. interesting about the word spiritual, uh, I was really struck when Ben Biber was in town. Um, when, when he was in town in November, uh, he gave a talk on humanistic spirituality, and he started his discussion very, a very wise way. He said, how many of you like the word spirituality, and how many of you don't like it? Right. And then he also said, for those who like the word spirituality, what would be an example of a spiritual experience that you've had, and things like the birth of your child, and experiencing nature, beautiful piece of music, things like that. And and then he said, of those who don't like the word spiritual, how many of you have had experiences like that? Right, right, right. Well, sure. So really, it's as much a question of vocabulary as anything else. Um, you can use two words in English that make, this, make sense of this. One is inspiration. That's the same root as spirit. Uh, and then there's the spirit world. <laughs> which is the supernatural realm. And so for some people, spirituality is a spirit world. It's supernaturalism. And for some people, spirituality is inspiration. And that can be emotional. It can be very uh, humanistic. Um, so what we have to realize is if we're really good humanists, we don't go around saying, well, that's not a real human need. That's not a real human emotion. That's not important. We have to respond to the reality of us, too, not just the world. And um, if that's the case, then we have to find a way to address those needs that are common to all cultures and all religious traditions, but in a way that fits with our philosophy. Uh, so it may be cultivating beauty experiences, uh, interpersonal uh, interactions. Community service can be a very spiritual experience. I mean, how many um, religious organizations are founded on service to their fellow people? It's because that helping other people is itself a, an emotionally uplifting and inspirational experience. And, and I think of it, you know, in terms of, you know, coming upon a, a work of art that you may have never seen, and at that particular moment, the light was right, you, and you look at it, and you're just, you know, your breath is taken away, and then, you know, you're not sitting there with the cold hard facts of, oh, there was so much, you know, so many photons coming in, and there was a result of this <laughs> equation, the reflection, you know, you're not sitting there with that kind of thing. And there were 7,262 brush strokes on the right, and, and, and that... You know, you can't sit there and just kind of analyze the beauty. The beauty is the beauty. And, and if you sat there and said, well, if you have a, you know, a, a light right here and you had the observer standing right there, you know, they would have the most, the maximum experience or whatever. It, it is what it is. And, and you have to just enjoy the beauty. You know, what's ironic is if you take humanism as hyper-rationalism to the extreme, it's autism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's... Pure rational analysis with no emotional or personal connection to the experience, um, and that's not our ideal. Uh, in fact, people are sometimes disturbed by experiencing people who have uh, autistic spectrum uh, issues uh, because it's not doesn't feel as real or as uh, as human as uh, as a full emotional experience. Well, the two things that you said about 
seeing it spirituality as the spirit world or seeing it as these um, connections. I think it's the same with, um, to me, it's like you're a part of something larger than yourself. So maybe for me, that is serving people, your family. Um, some people get that from yoga mm-hmm. or meditation. But then there's the idea that something larger than yourself is God and is the spirit. It's telling you what to do. <laughs> right. But I think that using the word, and it has a lot of baggage, like God and love and all those words that you can interpret in mm-hmm. numerous ways. And then we have a lot of misunderstanding of what you meant by that and what the person you were talking to meant by it. But, um, I think that I think to me that spirituality is the idea of being a part of something bigger than yourself, which makes your life have some meaning. Mm-hmm. Well, how much was spirituality used in mainstream Judaism Christianity before the 1960s? Yeah, it's definitely uh, hip. Yeah. <laughs> Even though hip isn't the hip anymore. But it's like the why did this Kabbalah Center open in Highland Park? Did you see that when this storefront opened? Oh sure. Yeah. And I thought that is hip. It's like we're of course it's the Midwest, so we're behind because right. that's oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> up to twenty. <laughs> right. It takes a while to filter in here. Right. Uh, yeah, that's um, that's exactly true. It's an issue that we're dealing with now that wasn't a, a, as high on the radar uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Okay, uh, questions of truth. What role does faith play in your system? How can we believe in science after all the terrible things science has done? What does it mean to be rational? Why are rational people so cold? How can you believe in scientific truth if it changes all the time? Any one of those jump out of here? I'd like to know what scientific truth means because for me the science you know it's always you know because it's science it's very ordered and to say a truth in science is you know you may have a theory the theory can still be challenged mm-hmm. and you can change as right there are you know right right well, I, I gave a sermon a few years ago on the hardest things to say, and one of them is, I don't know. It's very tough to say that. And there are people who, on any spectrum of theology, have trouble saying, I don't know. Um, but it's an important skill for us to cultivate, because if we then claim, I, I don't know this, but I do know that, now you're on a much more firm grounding. Uh, there used to be a character that Phil Hartman would uh, perform on Saturday Night Live called the Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer, mm-hmm. where he was a caveman, he was frozen in a block of ice, and then he was unfrozen, then he went to law school, and he became a criminal uh, defense, you know, like a personal injury attorney or something. So he'd be standing up giving his closing statement, and he'd say, I don't know much about your modern inventions, and I think that radios are made up of crazy demons that are presenting music out of my car, my BMW, but <laughs> but I do know this, I do know this. So it's the, I don't know this, but I do, it puts you in a stronger position when you admit what you don't know. Or occasionally I like to say, I don't know yet. Well, I don't personally know. And what the question is asking, though, is, you know, you, you say science tells you about the world as opposed to faith or, you know, direct revelation or meditation or something else. So why are you relying on science if it changes all the time? And my perspective is if you understand more, you should change. The, pe- the people that don't change, knowledge that refuses to change in response to new evidence is not knowledge. It's not reliable. It's not responsive to as much as we know. And more importantly, I don't assume that I know everything or that anyone knows everything. Our understanding of the outside world 
is a collection of individual experiences. This is why some people doubt that there is an outside world. You know, you can read some speculative philosophy that says it's all just your senses, and I don't know that you're there, or you're there, or this is there, or anything. And you get this temptation to start banging on the furniture and say, but it's here, I know it's here. Um, but the reality is that we only are approximating what we can know about the world through collecting your experience and your experience, because of scientist's experience and previous generations of scientists' experience. And so the better we can approximate, the better we can understand it. We're, we know a lot more now than we used to. But you're right. That's why I put truth in quotes. Right. You know, what is the truth? Well, you, it's as best we know. You, know. you could put that at the end of every scientific statement. Based on current information, X. Um, that's why people you know, cast doubt on the theory of uh, uh, evolution, even though the theory of gravity has not been challenged as much. <laughs> because there's constant reinforcement. Uh, all right, up to the quantum, you know, uh, speed of light levels. But um, the uh, the challenge for us is, you know, science is a, is a besieged uh, entity, but for us it's the best way to understand how the world works. And uh, it does change all the time, but again, I'd rather have knowledge that changes than, and is responsive to reality than something that refuses to change, and then I'm stuck with the heliocentric theory, uh, uh, the geocentric theory of the uh, universe, where because faith says the Earth is the middle, that's it. That's why. Science is this ongoing collection of information, and the body of truth changes as more right. information gets added to it. That's all. And it's inspirational. You know, every time I go over a massive suspension bridge or a you know highway overpass or something, I think the engineering, the technical knowledge, the skill to be able to build this thing that can withstand all these cars going over it and and uh, minor earthquakes and who knows what else and the weather is just it's phenomenal what we've been able to do. The the people who are alive today who would have died out for any number of diseases or accidents or other issues. You know, one of the problems we have today, actually, um, you know, death rates have gone down in car accidents, but it's not just because of seatbelts. It's also because of emergency medical care. We're so much better at solving the crisis. It's the same thing they're happening with soldiers now coming back from overseas. They're surviving with injuries they would have died from in previous conflicts. Because they get into medical care. Well, they're, they're also wearing core, they're wearing core body armor, so if the extremities get damaged, the, the core survives. And uh, and they get them to medical care faster and better uh, to save their lives. And then they have to deal with the aftermath of it, but... Less infection. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So science can be very inspirational, too. It's not only, you know, this uh, rational, cold process where you don't care about it. Science is about people. It's about improving life. I think the biggest problem I have is the the willful ignorance to just set aside human knowledge in favor of some kind of myth or fairy tale and say, well, of course ghosts exist because that's what I want to believe, you know, and it's just, you know, that, that willful, you know, disregard for... Well, that's, then the, that's why we found a community of like-minded people. Right. Who, uh, who are uh, have a consensus on some of those issues. You know, I think I've heard you say this before in other settings. There are some people you can have a conversation with and there are some people you can't. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, I mean, I find this within my own family because there are evangelical Christians and devout Catholics in my very close circle of friends and family. And you got to know who you can have a dialogue with. 
and and sometimes it's just not worth it or especially with family members it's not advantageous it's not helpful <laughs> to butt heads i mean my my dad is southern baptist and there's certain things we don't talk about we can have really interesting conversations about certain aspects of the bible because we're both fairly knowledgeable but then there's a place where you just don't go it's not helpful yeah, who wrote this and when? It's not helpful. We're, we're, we both, it's almost like with the people who are really staunch um, about what they believe and what they don't, as am I, you can only go to a certain point, and that's fine. And then there are other people you can have that conversation with, and it's really interesting. But I think part of it for us is being savvy about what, what those boundaries are um, so that we can be respectful and tolerant and not be fighting with people all the time. But that's, that's hard to figure out. The other thing to keep in mind is that sometimes, whether it's a dinner party or some other public event, the person you're talking to is not the only person listening. Right. Um, and so it may be other people who are listening to the conversation who may be a lot less hostile, let's say, than the person who may be, you know, sometimes they get, people get belligerent with these issues. Um, but people are watching how you're responding to it. And the person who loses their temper loses the argument. You have to be strong in what you believe and you know, not let people run over you. Um, but when you have someone who's calm and reasoning and responds uh, calmly and as if they know what they're talking about and feels comfortable with who they are, which is more convincing, that person or the person who's getting yelling and agitated? And obviously, it's the calmer, rational voice. And... Um, you know, you just don't let, don't let them rally you because, um, you, you know, you're, you're allowed to believe what you choose to believe just as they are. Uh, and if you feel like you have a better basis, they may feel that they have a better basis. And, you know, as, as Don says at a certain point, you know, the Yiddish phrase is Gesundheit, go in good health, do your thing, and I'll, I'll do mine. Is this a question that you receive from people? Why are rational people so cold? You hear it sometimes. You know, what about the emotional side? Uh, why do you use the word reason? I hate the word, re you know, reason is so enlightenment, imperialist, uh, Western civilization, male, you know, fill in the blank. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, reason is a skill. Just it can be used for good or for evil. Um, but uh, it also is, uh, again, one of our tools that we have to understand the world. Uh, and it does a good job. So uh, I, I choose to rely on that. I think of myself as a rational, reasonable person uh, until I'm being irrational and emotional, and that's okay, too. <laughs> we all have those signs. I'm thinking it's interesting how can we live in science after all the terrible things that science has done. Mm -hmm. And I know people think that, but science, did science do them? I know that sounds like guns don't kill people, people kill people. Right. But it really is like, yes. okay, well, you can, we do have human power. And we choose how to use it. You can right. use it to be helpful and productive, or you can choose to. With great power comes great responsibility. Right. Well, I, I think the thing, you know, with the guns, I mean, it makes me think of a little girl in, you know, outside Seattle who, you know, got shot in her classroom, you know, because the boy brought in a gun and dropped it on the desk and it didn't have a safety on and yeah. in the bag, you know, that type of thing. So, yes, there are. In scientific experiments, you could have an accident that would do something ca catastrophic, but I think it's the application of human knowledge that you're talking about. The right. well, I mean, look, scientists have done terrible experiments, too. I mean, there right. were the, the syphilis experiment, and there's all sorts of terrible stuff, Nazi experiments. 
But um, the point. Well, look, the, the point of science is that again, it's a, it's a human tool. Um, so nuclear knowledge can be used for radiation therapy to cure cancer, or at least to put in remission, or for nuclear weaponry, or for dirty bombs, or who knows. It's the same basic knowledge, it's just applied in very different ways. So it's not, you're right, it's not that science does bad things. Science can be used for bad things, but frankly, religion can be used for bad things too, and for good things. You know, you, you have to have a theory of religion that includes both the Inquisition and the Crusades and Martin Luther King and Gandhi, because those are both on the spectrum of religious influence behavior in the world. I mean, there's been a reevaluation even of Mother Teresa, where, you know, she... Uh, devoted her life to serving some of the poorest people out there, but also was implacably anti-birth control, which might have alleviated some of the poverty of the people that she was serving, but because of her religious beliefs, she wouldn't uh, count it. So. And just the difference in philosophy now where, you know, you know, 200 years ago, you would have, you know, missionaries going and, and you know, introducing Western philosophy, and at the time it was considered saving the savages. And, and yeah, even when they were already Catholic, right? <laughs> like in the Philippines. And now we we look at that and think back, boy, what a mistake! <laughs> All the mistakes well, they were. We don't look back at the mistakes. I mean, we look back at the mistakes. It's like the debate I was telling you about on the way to service this Friday night. The the high school where I work is doing uh, this Spring Spirit Week where they're. Um, gonna collect money for a charity and the kids were going to vote on the charity and they put three charities out there and two of them were Christian based charities and I went to my principal and you know had a talk with him and then um, ended up having a talk with the sponsor where it was just the side hostel you know we had to mm -hmm. and even there it was funny I talked about maybe it wasn't funny maybe I, I'm carrying around a little guilt I want to work this into the conversation mm -hmm. so I'm okay, to comment on this you have to put your feet up and like <laughs> um, but it got to the point where you know he was talking about his church and his wife working for this organization and I was talking about myself as um, a lesbian because one of the things this group does is um, anti-gay education mm -hmm. and I was talking about myself as a Jewish person, but didn't bring up the concept of humanism because mm -hmm. I thought I'm not going to get anywhere with go? this guy on this. Yeah. Like you can parade about your Christianity, but I'm going to keep that a little close to the vest, and I, I am kind of feeling some guilt over that now. Mm -hmm. But I didn't think it was going to win me any points. If anything, I thought he would discount my argument because of it. Right, right. Well, I, you know, again, uh, we each have a variety of personality perspectives and political, you know, uh, philosophical orientations that we have, um, you know, I, I could mention who I voted for in the last election. It might not have bearing on the particular issue that I'm dealing with. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry too much about that. No, I, I <laughs> well, plus you didn't lie. He inter maybe he interpreted you saying I'm Jewish in a certain way. That means you believe X, Y, and Z, but that's not really right. your problem. Oh, it's not so much guilt as, yes. as as, well, well, there's a little guilt, but aside from the guilt, it's the frustration that yeah. can whip out his cross as part of his argument. Yes, right. But I can't whip out my whatever <laughs> as part of my argument because yeah. that would be devastating to the argument. Yeah. But my philosophy about that is as valid, or maybe more so, than, <laughs> than it is. But, yeah. but that, that would poke a hole in my argument was frustrating to right. me. 
Well, one of the there is another organization <clears throat> called the Secular Coalition for America, which is a lobbying organization based in Washington D.C. Their website is secular.org. Um, it's actually a coalition group that includes the Society for Humanistic Judaism and the American Humanist Association and a number of other groups. And they have basically two missions. One is to deal with legislation that is up uh, dealing with con uh, that is before Congress that impinges on issues of particular relevance to this population, whether it's Pledge of Allegiance or In God We Trust on Buildings or vouchers for moments of silence, vouchers vouchers in schools, all, all kinds of stuff. Um, and their other mission is to improve, rehabilitate, so to speak, the image of the secular-minded person in society. So they had a contest to identify the highest-ranking elected official who would willingly come out as non-theistic, and they got a member of the House of Representatives who was willing to do that. Um, and they've got about 20 other people who privately will say that, but won't necessarily come out in public, because uh, now it's actually easier, at least in opinion surveys, uh, to be acceptable as a candidate for president if you're gay than if you're not theist. Um, so we're the next, uh, the next stage. <laughs> yeah, two for two. Um, so I, I suggested to the group, actually, that one of their next contests should be a professional athlete at the you know, highest level professional athlete that they can find. Right. Well, look at all the hoopla that goes around with that. Um, and we, you know, we could have a similar hoopla. And it's, you're, you're probably going to find a retired athlete more than an active athlete. But if you could find a retired Hall of Fame caliber athlete, be willing to come out as a non-theistic person. That would make a big difference for people. Um, Tim Tebow is for sure. No, it's not going to be Tim but there's plenty of options that are not going to be that case. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.